0: along to the Brain for Business podcast with me, Lawrence Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain, behavioral and organizational sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. As always, make sure to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn, or else we look forward to your feedback and comments by email to laurie at brainforbusiness.ie. Over the last few years of the COVID pandemic, we have all become used to the idea of contagion, and in particular, how viruses spread through communities and societies. But have you ever thought for a moment about how change, most especially behavioral change, spreads through networks, societies, and indeed organizations? To explore this further, I am honored to welcome to the Brain for Business podcast professor, Damon Centola. Damon Centola is the Elihu Katz Professor of Communication, Sociology and Engineering at the University of Pennsylvania, where he is Director of the Network Dynamics Group and Senior Fellow at the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics. Damon's research centers on social networks and behavior change. His work has received numerous scientific awards, and in addition to his positions at the University of Pennsylvania, Damon is a fellow of the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. Popular accounts of Damon's work have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Wired, Time, the Atlantic, Scientific American, and CNN, among other outlets. He's also a series editor for Princeton University Press, and the author of How Behaviour Spreads, The Science of Complex Contagions and Change, How to Make Big Things Happen. Damon, welcome to Brain for Business. Thank you, Uh, thanks for having me. In a 2018 article published in Science, you and your co-authors considered how big a minority needs to be in order to reshape society. Could you perhaps start by telling us a little bit about that research?
1: Yeah, it's been a fascinating question for a number of years, this this notion of a critical mass that could reach a kind of special tipping point. And at that point, then a small group of activists could trigger an entire society to sort of change their beliefs and their social norms. And it's sort of triggered the imagination of social scientists for decades. But one of the challenges has been historically that if you look at the process of change from an economic model, you'd say, well, it's rational to do what other people are doing until the sort of critical mass reaches 51%. And then the majority now, you know, convince everyone else. So that's not very helpful from a social change perspective, because you basically need the majority to get anything to happen. So a bunch of us started studying how people interacting in social networks might be able to form tightly knit clusters of sort of committed minorities and how those committed minorities may allow for kind of spillover effects where their enthusiasm would spill over to affect others and so on and so forth. And the critical question, I think, that's been behind this for years, um, whether you're talking about changing gender norms in organizations or changing, you know, broad social norms about the acceptance of um, decriminalizing marijuana um, to changes in public views about things like Black Lives Matter. The question has been well how big does that critical mass need to be to effectively trigger social change and whenever we see one of these events happen historically like the emergence of you know the arab spring you look back at the tape of history and there's many different points at which you can say well these people were active and then more people became active but it's very hard to pinpoint like the critical mass point point. Mm-hmm. and so the only way to answer it scientifically would be to basically rerun the tape of history multiple times starting with different sizes of critical mass groups and saying, well, was this one too small? Did it fail? Was this one too small? And was this one big enough? Did it succeed? And did everything else that was that big also succeed? And so that's what we did. We built a set of experiments in which we uh, recruited hundreds of people to these online communities and had them coordinate with each other just on coming up with certain basic naming conventions. How do we name men? How do we name women? And once a naming convention locked in, It was the norm. That's how we all talk about, you know, female names and male names. And then we introduced, once the sort of norm was established, a bunch of activists. And these were people who just randomly started trying to sort of shift up the gender norms about which names we use for men and which names we use for women. And if the group was too small, they basically were ignored and eventually they disappeared. But we found, and this was really interesting because we would used this theory that I, I'll talk about later, I guess, the theory of compass contagion to predict how much social reinforcement do people need in order to sort of shift their thinking from what they're comfortable with, uh, what they're familiar with from past experience to something new. And the prediction we came up with was if you have about 25% of the population pushing for an idea and they're connected enough in a network that can allow for that idea to be reinforced, then that 25% can be sufficient for tipping the rest of the population and basically allowing everyone else to shift their norms to a new uh, practice and new behavior.
0: So 25% is obviously quite a lot lower than perhaps a more intuitive 50% plus one. That, right. that might have, have been how how people saw it. When you, when you looked at that, in the, the context of your uh, I guess experiment for one better term, did you find that it mattered who those twenty five percent were and how they were perhaps connected to others in society, or or was it just twenty five percent full stop?
1: Yeah, so though in these experiments, we kept the this is one of the beautiful things about doing experiments is that, um, in any given historical setting, so many of these things can vary that it's hard to sort of pinpoint one thing like a like a tipping point number because everything else could be different, also. So we kept the connectedness of the population the same um, for every single experiment. Um, and we randomly chose people to be our activists in every single experiment. So that element of it was sort of held constant. And we can say, well, for you know, on average, regular people in a population. And with a typical amount of connectedness, we can say, this is what the tipping point looks like. And then we we in the in the book that you mentioned change, I talk about how if you you can improve upon the 25 percent, actually making it even lower, if you are strategic about where in the network, certain network locations um, you target to grow your twenty five percent, you can actually make that into like 20% or even lower by being really strategic in how you exploit these sort of network influences.
0: You use the word network influences there, but as you were speaking, the, the word that came to my mind was influencers, a word that sort of gained more popular currency in, in recent times through social right. media. So yeah. was it or is it actually about some of those influencers within those, those networks or those clusters or is that a different function altogether?
1: Yeah, this is probably one of the most surprising discoveries to come out of this research uh, in contrast with what most people talk about today and in, in the space of social media and the space of uh, marketing and behavior change more generally, which is we tend to look for special people. And we say, what makes these people special is they're highly charismatic and they're also very highly connected. And if we can just get, you know, those that were even just that one special person to adopt or proselytize this new idea then it's going to spread to everyone. And it turns out that's completely wrong <laughs> when it comes to behavior change and norm change. It works really well for selling coconut water, right? Or for like convincing us to do something that we're kind of already going to do anyway. But for shifting our beliefs and for doing things like taking to the streets with Black Lives Matter, it's not one person who can convince us, it's really kind of a cluster of reinforcing influences. And this is where Um, The emphasis out of this work takes the idea of special people and turns it into special places. There are special places in the network and whoever the people are who happen to be at these sort of uh, powerful intersections of, of network communities, those people, even though individually they're not particularly highly connected and they're not particularly known for being famous or charismatic, their collective influence on the network is really much greater than anybody else.
0: So if we step away then from that accepted kind of norm of who are the key influences in a society or in an organization or a network, does that also mean that the role of, for example, um, leaders within a community or a network or an organization, that their role actually perhaps isn't as important or as strong as they themselves might like to think and as we might often attribute to them.
1: Yeah, it's again, there are two versions of history. There's the version after the fact, when we look back and say, we think these were the important moments, largely because those moments map onto our intuitive beliefs about how things work. And then there's like the predictive version of history, which is, all right, if we were to try to initiate a moment and we tried it this way, would it succeed or would it fail? So one of my favorite examples of this kind of thing was um, with the spread of Twitter, which I think most of us think of as like this explosive social media technology. It probably spread virally over the internet. But actually Twitter grew very slowly for years, like building, building, building a critical mass within the San Francisco Bay Area. Like literally block by block, street by street, like neighbor to neighbor, very local growth. And then it spread from uh, from the San Francisco area to Cambridge, Massachusetts, which seems weird because that's pretty far away, Uh, but also it's not one of the bigger cities either. So why Cambridge? It's because San Francisco was a tech hub and lots of people were going to technical schools, uh, Berkeley, Stanford, MIT, Harvard, and a lot of the same people, a lot of friends from college wound up in the 128 uh, tech corridor in Boston. So you had this kind of thick social uh, network between these two areas that were just friends of friends. And so you had lots of people adopting Twitter in the Bay Area and trying to connect with their friends who had gone to college together who are now living in the Boston area. And so you wound up with this bloom, the sort of critical mass around Boston, too. And what you see is that you get these sort of localized blooms through people's sort of connections in their social networks. And eventually this triggers a sort of nationwide critical mass tipping point around 25%, where all of a sudden the growth of Twitter just becomes explosive from city to city to city to city. It's just taking off. And at the peak of that growth, right when it's accelerating the fastest, that's when Oprah adopts on her television show. And she signs up for Twitter. And so what you see, if you look at history is, well, before Oprah adopts, there's lower adoption. And then after Oprah adopts, there's higher adoption. But what's interesting is like, wow, that's true. Looking back retrospectively, if you look at it going forward, Oprah actually adopted after the highest growth peak had been achieved. It was the rate of growth that was so fast that got Oprah's attention that made her realize this is a real phenomenon. I want to be part of it. And so when we're thinking about these spreading processes and how a critical mass takes off, it's not really the sort of looking back at history and figuring out who the big adopter was. It's what happened. So this thing became such a big deal that well-known people wanted to be part of it. And that's the growth process that happens within social networks.
0: In, in your book, uh, How Behavior Spreads, you use the example of the, the, the AIDS epidemic in, in the 1980s. And uh, if I remember correctly, the the, the, the focus on, on sexual health amongst um, particularly impacted communities. And, and and you make the point, again, if I remember correctly, that on the one hand you've got certain things where a behavior just have to changes just has to change once. So for example, signing up to Twitter, you sign up and pretty most people would stay signed up even if they don't use it often compared to for example, every time a person who is at risk of AIDS, engaged in sexual activity they need to remember to use a condom does does that does that also impact on the spread of of behaviors and and how sticky they they might be
1: yeah and it's really i think the the distinction there you're talking about is the distinction between a a one and done behavior um we also think of vaccination as one of these kinds of things typically although of course covid requires multiple vaccines (laughs) but something like mmr is like a one and done um versus like continuing ongoing behaviors you need to maintain. So from a social influence and network perspective, um, the social influences that are effective at getting people to adopt one and done behaviors are the same, the sort of complex contagion through sort of wide bridges of reinforcement. They're the same that are effective for getting people to adopt behaviors that require more commitment. But the trick is with one and done, you can typically, once sort of there's a, a path of adoption, you can kind of turn your back and ignore it and say, well, we've succeeded. People have adopted the product or gotten the vaccine. But with the commitment challenge, it's also a question of, well, how do the networks also help people stay committed? How do they help people stay engaged? And this is one of the sort of more interesting findings from this work. It's that the reinforcing networks, which again, they they aren't very good for viral spreading, (laughs) but they're incredibly good for getting this sort of behavior change uh, process underway. They're also really good for maintaining behavior change because okay. basically the kinds of forces these networks create, which is a sense of legitimacy for the behavior, a sense of social currency. We can talk about it with each other. We understand it. Like, for example, how do you use a condom? When do you use it? Talking to your peers and friends about, you know, different questions you have about that kind of practice. Um, and that's also true for a, a new a new kind of um. Age prevention strategy I'd also discuss in the newer book, Change, which is PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is basically like a daily Tylenol. And in that case, what's so striking is that unlike condom use, which is, you know, it it interferes with the sort of intimacy of of the act, but it also has this kind of sort of Western canon of of medicine influencing sort of behavior in, you know, among sub-Saharan Africans. It has this sort of um, colonial feel to it in many cases when people are doing public health work. The PrEP pill has a much thinner um, level of intervention, which is it's just a daily Tylenol, just take it once a day, and the likelihood of transmission is like reduced to like lower than 10%. Even then, people weren't taking the pill, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's not just the challenge of like a difficult behavior. It's really the challenge of getting over people's norms and expectations of what they should be doing. And this is where having a reinforcing network, the kind that can, in, you know, in influence people to adopt a behavior is also the same kind of network that helps them maintain the behavior. Because they said, once there's legitimacy and there's credibility and there's social currency, then maintaining this behavior and talking about the behavior becomes part of normal daily life. And so the networks that help for one and done adoption actually also help for like long-term commitment.
0: And it strikes me just to, I, I guess, de- develop that further and, and staying with the 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 AIDS a- epidemic, the importance of repetition and 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 talking about it is in complete contrast to what well, was that Nancy Reagan tried to to follow right. with the, the just say no, which actually is you're you're submerging it, you're not talking about, so you don't have those reinforcement mechanisms.
1: Yeah, one of the, the famous. Um failures in American public health. There have been many, but that one that one really stands out because it didn't just fail, it backfired, right? It actually increased the prevalence of drug use. And so um, it's, it's exactly that. It's saying, uh, let's shove the social network into the background and just make this like a public health media problem. And it's like, well, if so- social science has taught us anything, it's that these decisions are made in social networks. And so any real solution is gonna have to engage a network style solution.
0: How does the, the approach that you, you've been describing there fit, or, or perhaps not, with, with other studies or other approaches to behavioral change in society? And For example, nudge that people might be familiar with from Sunstein and Thaler, or, or equally, Cialdini's social influence uh, approaches?
1: Yeah. So I'll, the Cialdini is interesting because. He was He's a psychologist and kind of starting from that perspective of like what's influential for a person, um, but he was one of the first people to recognize this idea of social proof, which is that um, what's influential for a person isn't just hearing something said. It's actually seeing this kind of body of evidence just by observing lots of people doing something, and you get this feeling that this thing is more accepted. And what a lot of my work does is unpack that into a series of mechanisms that then we can make use of in a network context and say, well, if social proof matters, when does it matter? Does it matter when we're talking about health behavior? Does it matter when we're talking about investing behavior? And then what are the kinds of networks that convey that kind of social proof most effectively? It turns out the networks that spread viruses and gossip really easily Um, don't do a good job at all of conveying social proof. Mm. It turns out that information arrives, but it doesn't arrive with a lot of convincing. It just sort of arrives as like a ping. And the expectation is, well, the thing that arrives is supposed to be like fun, easy to do, it's gossipy, and you spread it along. But that's a kind of imagining a social network as a pipe. It's just kind of a conduit for transmission. But social networks, in my view, really are also prisms. We're actually... the the information we get is being colored and shaped by all the people that are either doing it or not doing it. And this is one of the really big insights of the sort of the new work on complex contagions is that it's not just the adopters who influence us. It's also the non-adopters implicitly by not adopting or by not participating in something. They're showing us that there's sort of a force of social norms against this thing, even without saying a word. And so this is where kind of the balance between adoption and non-adoption becomes so big in the sort of way that networks operate. Um, And I would say that's the real step forward beyond the the Cialdini perspective. And the nudge perspective, I think, has been interesting and informative, largely because it says something that I feel like a lot of people already felt was true, which is that the standard economic model of behavior isn't very good. Uh, The rational actor model doesn't really predict what people do and when they do it. And um, it's not very good for policymaking, even though we've been using it for, you know, uh, half a century to, to make policies. It's one reason why a lot of our health policies have failed. People have tried to do things like, if we want you to get vaccinated, we'll give you $100, to go get vaccinated. And then we're surprised when not only it didn't work, but then fewer people started getting vaccinated. It's like, well, because people are looking around and they're seeing what everyone else thinks of that idea. And it's backfired so many. It's actually even backfired famously in the case of uh, CEO salaries, where there was this sort of shame incentive given to CEOs that if they um, demanded too high a salary, the the journal would publish all of the highest salaries as a way of uh, outing the people who were too greedy in, in the space. What wound up happening is instead of being an individual shaming practice, like being put in a pillory, it actually wound up being a collective endorsement, which is everyone looked at this list of high paid CEOs and basically said, okay, this is our new benchmark. Great, we have to go from here up. And so whenever we move from like an individual type of treatment to a collective one, we have to take into account the fact that people are responding to each other and how this sort of new policy is being inter- you know, introduced. And I think that's the part that nudges haven't done a good job with, which is they basically say, I can nudge you. If I take you and give you a towel uh, rack assignment, or give you a you know, cafeteria, you know, food layout. Um, I can, you know, manipulate your your biased brain into making certain choices. But when people are put together in a room, they're also watching how everyone else makes choices, and collectively, that can sort of go in a completely different direction. And that's actually most of the work I'm doing now is looking at a lot of the kind of intuitive cognitive biases that nudges are trying to exploit and showing that they operate completely differently when we look at them collectively and look at them in networks.
0: You mentioned there, particularly in terms of the Chaldini, this idea of people who are, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, in favor of something and those who are not in favor of something and that sort of balance between them. If we bring things, I guess, to the last couple of years and and, and look at the, the pandemic period. And obviously, there were those who were in favour of uh, health protection measures, whether you're talking about masks or vaccination or whatever. And then there were those, and there still are those, who are very opposed to those and and refuse to, to, to sign up to any of those measures. Were there then any additional insights that grew out of the global COVID pandemic experience that have influenced your thinking about change and behavioral change in society?
1: Well, this is the interesting thing about this kind of research in sociology is that I had to do so much work to create these uh, experimental tools to study sort of large scale population dynamics um, in order to get like real causal proof of how these network uh, um, influences operate. But once you understand that and you have like very clear theoretical evidence, then all of a sudden just the world becomes this font of, of uh, useful examples of how this operates. And um, for me, the the pandemic, it was happening while I was actually writing my second book. So I was able to introduce in the discussion of the book, some of the pandemic phenomena, um and say, when I'm talking about norms, norms can see come kind of vague. It's you know, what do you mean? Where do they show up? It's like norms is how we stand and, and get onto an elevator. Like what feels comfortable? What How do we walk down the street? And, you know, for the first time, that kind of disruption, which usually happens over years, was happening over the course of weeks. And so we all sort of started experiencing norms in real life where all of a sudden people would walk down the street and instead of just walking by someone, they would give each other um, you know, extra wide uh, margins of of as They walked around these these wide berths. And when you were talking to a stranger, did, if they weren't wearing a mask, should you put a mask on? Or, or, or you would be insulting to them because you would basically be communicating you think they're infected. It was this space of like tremendous uncertainty about how to behave. And normally we would all just sort of step onto an elevator and then all of a sudden people were waiting and not knowing how many people should get on an elevator at the same time or what the expectations would be who would be uncomfortable if too many people got on. Um, And the same thing, even with sitting on a subway car, you know, do you sit down next to someone or two seats away? And those kinds of things, if we had to make those calculations all the time, every day, would drive us crazy. Like we just know how to behave. We know how to walk on the left-hand side of the road or walk on the right-hand side of the road. Like whatever people do, we do. But what the pandemic did was make all of that really conspicuous and uncomfortable. So it was hard for people just to navigate daily life. And I think from that perspective, it really showed the power of norms in, you know, in sort of every aspect of our lives and in things where like there are life and death issues, like a you know, a deadly pandemic spreading. Turns out that norms are one of the basic things we have to take care of. Like what do people expect? And what do you expect of other people? And those lessons then translate into sort of Things where it's harder to see, like the adoption of environmental technologies and solar panels, right? Where the evidence is really clear, but it's harder to sort of make it hit home. But I feel like with the pandemic, all those examples became very real and very meaningful to everyone in a way that you didn't require a tremendous amount of explanation. We understand what norms are and how they feel when they're violated. Yeah,
0: And, And I guess as well, we were able to, in real time, see how different countries as societies responded in different ways and these different patterns of of behavior, which emerged as a consequence of different policies and so on.
1: Well, consequence of different policies, but also consequence of different networks. I mean, one of the most conspicuous differences between the sort of simple contagion, like a virus and a complex contagion, like a behavior or norm, is that the disease, the COVID-19 or the coronavirus, uh, spreads really effectively through every single tie, right? Doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat or what, you know, SES you belong to, right? What's status or social class? Like it just spreads from person to person. And that's the class of, classic viral model. And then she contrast that with, like, how did face masks spread? Right. And what you saw was it was really clustering by these sort of um, political beliefs and by social status and by sort of economic condition. And those things became really uh, testimonies to how different the spreading dynamics are of kind of behavioral contagions versus simple viral contagions.
0: Very interesting. If we we shift the focus to organizations, which I I guess are a a sub society, if you like, as opposed to a whole society, do, do the same findings that emerge from your research also apply to behavioral change in the context of organizations?
1: They do, and I think organizations is actually one of the places where it's easiest to imagine um, implementing this work. Uh, I I spent an entire chapter in the new book um, talking about um, shifting gender norms in organizations around sexual harassment, but also around equal pay. And one of the interesting things we can show is that in an organization, because you know the population size, it's well defined, Mm. you also know what 25% of that looks like. And you also actually have a pretty good sense of who's connected to whom what project teams people are on what levels and floors people work on and so forth and as a result of that you can be fairly strategic about initiating change campaigns within organizations that are effective at at sort of tipping the social norm or in organizational wide context and so i feel like that's actually one of the most exciting areas for applications
0: given that no i'm conscious culture exists on, on different levels. And we we recently had a podcast episode looking at sort of intercultural in, intelligence, but within organizations and thinking of organizational culture, does that also play a role in, in terms of influencing how behavioral change might or, or might not spread?
1: Yeah, the organizational culture basically is used as kind of a backdrop where you say, what's the level of resistance to this kind of change, right? How much Does an individual feel like their commitment to past ways holds a principled and in some cases, even like a moral standing, even though, I mean, norms really are historically arbitrary, but we uh, become attached to them very, very easily. So something like a handshake can feel proper and right um, to people in a way that transcends the history of handshakes. It takes on a kind of moral character Mm -hmm. Um, and replacing that with a fist bump can feel like immature, improper, disrespectful, and so forth. And so the question of like, well, at what point do people who are, you know, in a business culture where the handshake, there are books written about the proper way to shake a hand, right? The handshake is thought of as like this, you know, signature of tradition and respect. And all of a sudden, you're dealing with firms from Silicon Valley who have adopted this culture of fist bumps. And these two businesses want to do some sort of project together and have to, first and foremost, manage as people. And so the question is, when those sorts of conversations happen across sort of traditional c- cultural lines, does, does it fail just because the cultures are too different? Or is there a way in which the influence of one uh, organization can actually take over and help to shift the norms in another organization? And um, some of the work that I was I was doing about these ex- with, with these examples just took a kind of ethnographic take on um, when we saw fist bumps take over, how in some cases they kind of grew and then fell, fell away. Um, but in other cases, particularly in cases where firms needed to work together and they already were sort of, let's say, um, doing business in Silicon Valley. Um, and so trying to sort of manage those tech relations then fist bumps became a vehicle for establishing a kind of sameness of mind. Like we understand each other, we understand what our goals are, we're flexible. I mean, it communicates so much just with a simple gesture. And so as the norms of fist bumps began changing, then it allowed for new kind of business relationships to open up as well. Um, and I think that the one of the things that was a signature of this is that organizations that allowed for deeper network ties from other organizations into their organization internally were the ones that were most successful at sort of managing this sort of change in norms across organizational boundaries.
0: Building on that then, what would you perhaps suggest are some of the key lessons for for leaders who are looking to drive behavioral change in the societies or or indeed the the organizations they lead?
1: Well, I think it's a great question. And in the, the new book, Change, I talk specifically about what these lessons mean for for organizational leadership. And I take the example um, from one of uh, Barack Obama's speeches. He came to MIT when I was there and gave a talk about leadership in a sort of complex and changing world. And he emphasized this thing he would do where when he had himself and all the sort of cabinet ministers sitting around this sort of big oak wood table that was very formal and, as he said, presidential, he also had along the line um, in the back of the room just surrounding the perimeter, uh, these staffers. And he said, look, these are the people who actually do the work, they're the grunts, and they don't speak in these meetings. But he would make it a habit of calling on people who are not comfortable speaking Mm -hmm. around around so many high, uh, high ranking officials, but just kind of sharing this sort of on the ground knowledge. And the point here is that so much of what we learn about networks is that, although we tend to give priority and precedence to the people who are well known and highly connected, there is just a tremendous amount of organizational information and power located out in the periphery of the network. And tapping that periphery, finding out what people are thinking, what's going on in their sort of experiences and expectations, um, and ultimately sort of what they know that isn't being surfaced in the conversation is a very powerful way of figuring out what the norms really are and how the norms might be shifting. And that's a really good way of figuring out where uh, pressure can be applied and where lessons can be learned that can kind of alter the trajectory of an organization much more effectively than doing something top-down. And so sort of tapping into the sort of tacit knowledge of the sort of people in the periphery, I think, is one of the smartest and most effective thing that, that organizational leaders can do.
0: One of our uh, regular listeners, and indeed uh, when she was at Facebook, was, was a guest on, on the podcast, Joe Ch- 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 Carney. I mentioned to her that you, you're coming on the, the the podcast and she uh, she was sort of wondering, and I think it kind of fits with what you were saying there, you know how do you actually change the pervasive thinking about change in traditional organizations? Is it where you have the the high status leader consciously role modeling different behaviors and and pushing things forward from there or or is it perhaps something different?
1: yeah, I think I think you can't ignore the fact that people at any level of status are members of a network. But the thing we often overlook is that the network goes beyond them, right? There are two, three, four levels out of like people who know people who know people. And where the norms really become entrenched is in the daily practices of people who are just trying to get their jobs done. like most people aren't thinking about norms, right? Most people are just thinking about, Doing a good job at work and making sure the projects are done on time. And one of the hardest things with organizational change is that it creates new risks for people, right? It's it's I'm you know a project manager or I'm a, a programmer and I just want to make sure I'm you know hitting my marks in terms of expectations. And if all of a sudden we're going to shift our work routines or sort of change our our project planning methods, all I can see is that that's a, a huge barrier to me doing my work effectively. It's going to impact me negatively. And this is where the networks within an organization can be really effective at basically creating bridges from groups that are sort of more innovative, they're trying to sort of advance this change in thinking, to groups that may be more reluctant. And there's a couple things at stake, is that when people see social reinforcement from other peers, doing a sort of a new behavior. They can first of all, learn and adapt. How does that behavior work for them? What are the ways in which they've had to change their routines and practices? How long did it take them to get up to speed? Were they actually able to be productive in a relatively t- uh, short time scale? But there's also an issue of trust because mm-hmm. as we all know in organizational settings, there's this famous idea of like the broker, the person who comes along and sort of learns about what's happening in group A and group B and group C and tells everyone, And the mistake historically, and this is again, actually a mistake between simple and complex contagion, the mistake is to think that the simple contagion of information, which the broker can spread very easily, is the same thing as the complex contagion of actually adopting an innovation, which is not the same thing, because being convinced to adopt an innovation means that you believe that this thing is actually going to work for you. And a broker, although they may have the best of intentions and be a really nice person, also has an incentive, which is to get people talking about the thing they're talking about, in which case they get credit for brokering. So really, when we're looking in an organizational context to see whether we change our work routines or whether we change our norms and practices, we're really just looking at our immediate peers and saying, is this something that other people are comfortable with? And am I comfortable with it too? And this is where having these, what I refer to as networks of wide bridges, across different parts of an organization is so essential for creating that sense of coordination and trust from group to group. And this is really what can allow organizational change to take off. And so from a sort of management point of view, I think what people can do, and I think, again, organizations is one of the best sort of implementation sites for this kind of work, is they can spend a lot of time making sure that the organization is designed so that there are lots of wide bridges between different groups and clusters to basically create an infrastructure for change.
0: Just as we're, I guess, wrapping up, the, the, the question that, that comes to mind emerging from those comments is does does what you're suggesting and, and, and the research that you have undertaken also perhaps lead to a conclusion that the traditional models of change management, caught as eight steps, ADCAR, et cetera, et cetera, that they're actually not really as important or as powerful, as, as some people might believe, or, or do they still have a place in addition or in parallel to what you're talking about?
1: Well, I think all, I mean, you know, you can let many flowers bloom. Um, but I do think in terms of where we put our, our focus, there are really some important lessons from attempts to use kind of a viral strategy in a case where complex contagion thinking is really needed, and how that doesn't just lead to failure, it can often lead to pretty serious backfire where the project and the initiative are far worse than when you started. I think that's important I think there are a lot of people because the influencer idea is pretty intuitive. You know, it's not, you don't actually need network science to come up with that. You find a charismatic well-known person and use them to sell an idea, right? Um, it's, you know, celebrity marketing, you know kind of rendered into network terminology. So the question is, well, if we understand that we can put money into it, we can justify it to, you know, our team and our board then you know there's no harm done, right? Maybe, maybe the new science shows that it's not gonna work as effectively as we had hoped, but at least we're doing something. And the real sort of punchline here, and the thing I would sort of write in the sky is no, <laughs> it's not just doing something. It could actually be making your problem much worse. You can't just continue on with business as normal because, uh, and the, my, one of my favorite examples of this is Google Glass, is like Google marketed this, you know really interesting high-tech basically cyborg eyewear <laughs> that would allow people to you know browse the web on their eyeglasses and even you know record the visual environment um and they pushed this out into the silicon bay area which which made sense you know silicon valley bay area people are super techie they like this kind of stuff so they used you know high status tech influencers to be the early adopters people who could afford fifteen hundred dollars glasses and then the idea was that, you know, with the, the promise of an influencer is that they're going to be so compelling and attractive that other people are going to want to be like them. And then the influence will flow through the network. But what wound up happening was with it, what Google didn't take into account and what sort of the, the mainstay of the work on complex contagions really highlights is that there are existing social norms all over the place that we don't see. And we don't see them because we haven't pushed on them, just like the way that riding an elevator never felt like a social norm until the pandemic came along. Mm. And then all of a sudden, it's like, wait, there. I don't know what to do. right? So when this technology was introduced, what wound up happening was people felt really uncomfortable with the idea of talking to someone who might be browsing the web on their eyeglasses unbeknownst to the speaker. It felt rude and impersonal. But more importantly, people didn't like the idea that, you know, rich techies who could afford these glasses could, you know, record the environment without anyone knowing. And it felt like this sort of, all of a sudden, instead of Google being this cool tech company that like celebrates artists and minorities on its website, became this like tech juggernaut that sold, you know, surveillance technology to the rich. And that really, I mean, obviously we know what happened was that, the, you know, there was such a cultural backlash that people who wore glass were referred to as glass holes. And you know signs were put up in cafes and bookshops like you just weren't allowed to enter if you were using this tech. So uh, it was a huge product failure. I mean, it's, I think the technical definition here would be fiasco. And uh, as a result of that, not only did the product line you know completely get canceled, but Google's reputation as a company wound up taking a real hit. Mm. And I think that's the kind of situation where you can say, well, look, they were trying to use the sort of playbook of viral contagion, you know, influencers and. You know, product marketing, making it sticky. And it was sticky, but it it was sticky in the sense that we all still remember it and all remember how bad it was, right? And so these are the kinds of cases that make us realize that when we're thinking about social change and we're engaging social norms, we really need to adopt the sort of strategies of complexity rather than the strategies of morality.
0: Okay. Professor Damon Santola of the University of Pennsylvania, many thanks for your
1: time. Absolutely. My pleasure.